Thank you, Lord, for meeting our need for a Savior and our need for a Redeemer, our need for our Heavenly Father, our need for forgiveness and cleansing, our need for a Lord to rule in our life. Thank you so much. There's four people today answering the call to the Lord to obey His command to be baptized in water. Right now, I'd like to call the families of Jared Adcock and Brooke Farmer Ford. Jared, do you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins? you believe that he's risen from the dead? Have you given him your life? Jared Adcock, upon the confession of your faith and in obedience... To the Lord Jesus Christ and in his name, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I now baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son, our Messiah Jesus, and of the Holy Spirit, planted in the likeness of his death, rising to walk in newness of life. Lord, I thank you for my brother. I ask you, Lord, to bless him for his obedience. Fill him to overflowing with your spirit, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, if the Lord gives you a word of encouragement for Jared or any of these four people today, be sure and write it down and get with them before you leave here today to encourage them. Brooke Farmer. Brooke, do you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins? you believe that he's risen from the dead? Have you given him your life to serve him? Upon the confession of your faith, Brooke Farmer, and in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ and in his name, I now baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and of the Holy Spirit, planted in the likeness of his death, rising to walk in the newness of life. Lord, bless her for obedience. Fill her to overflowing with your spirit, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Let's extend our hands and pray for this family. Lord, bless this family. Fill them all with your spirit. Lord, give them all a revelation of your Lordship. In Jesus' name. Bless them, Lord. May they be an encouragement to Jared and Brooke on the journey that they've continued today. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Could Alina Cudd and her family come forward, please? Alina, do you believe that Jesus died for your sins? Do you believe that he's risen from the dead? Have you put your faith in him to forgive you? Have you given him your life? Alina Cud, on the confession of your faith and in obedience to Jesus and in the name of Jesus, I now baptize you according to his command in the name of the Father and of the Son, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and of the Holy Spirit, planted in the likeness of his death, rising to walk in the newness of life. Lord, I thank you for our little sister. Bless Sister Alina. Fill her to overflowing with your spirit. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. You know all I need.
we just pray for the Cud family, the extended family, the Lamones, and everyone, Lord. Bless them. Give them all a revelation of your Lordship, Lord. May they be an encouragement to Alina as she continues her journey with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise the Lord. All right, Cheyenne Columbus. You come forward with your family. All right, Miss Columbus, Miss Cheyenne, what grade are you in? Seventh, this girl has a Bible study at school. <laughs> Amen. Do you believe the Lord Jesus Christ died for your sins? Do you believe that he's risen from the dead? Have you given him your life to serve him all the days of your life? Miss Cheyenne Columbus? Upon the confession of your faiths and in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, obedience to his command, I now baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son, the Lord Jesus, and of the Holy Spirit. Planted in the likeness of his death. Rising to walk in the newness of life. Lord, bless Cheyenne. Give her a revelation of your glory. Fill her to overflowing with your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Lord, we bless her family. Fill them all with your spirit, Lord. Give them all a revelation of your lordship. Bless them, Lord. Amen. Here is water. What does hinder you from being baptized? If you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, He died for your sins, and He's risen from the dead, follow through on that and obey His first command in following Him, and that's to be baptized in water. It's a picture of what He did for us. He died to Himself. He was buried and he rose to give new life. We die to ourselves when we recognize his lordship. We are buried in a watery grave that's painless, and we rise to walk in newness of life. in the earth who think if they just had one more good deal, they'd have all that they needed. The addict thinks, if I just got one more fix, I would have everything that I needed. If I just made one more dollar, I would have everything that I needed. If I just got one more lover, I would have everything that I needed. If I just had one more child, I would have everything that I needed. One more job, I would have everything that I needed. And it goes on and on and on like a snowball down a hill getting bigger and bigger. The need never stops because the need in the heart of man is not more stuff. And it's not to get more high because there's no high like the most high. All we need is Him. For God so loved the world. He so loved the world that He gave us 
his only son, that most precious gift to mankind, so that whoever would believe in him, they would not have to perish in this world of need. They could have the need of their soul, their need for forgiveness, their need for reconciliation with God and their fellow man met through Christ who died for our sins to pay for the penalty and to break the power of sin. Are you glad about it? Amen. That is the gospel in a nutshell, that God loves you and gave himself for you to give you new life. And you receive the benefits of that by believing that. If you find yourself beginning to believe what I'm sharing, that is saving faith beginning to dawn in your heart. Step out on that faith and call on his name. Let's do it right now. Jesus, I believe you are the Son of God. I believe you died for my sins. And I believe in your resurrection. Jesus, I call on your name. Save me. Forgive me. Make me your child. It starts out just that simple. Just begin to call on His name. Amen. Are you glad that we found out that we need Him and He met our needs? Amen. Can we show our appreciation to the Lord and to Pastor Karen Anderson and the Ashton Chick and Jim Praise? Thank you all so much. Thank you so much. Acts chapter 6, go to chapter 5, the last couple of verses there. The church leaders had been beaten. Verse 40, they agreed with him. Gamaliel was pleading for the lives of the leaders, saying, hey, this is not of God. It's going to eventually come to an end, but if it is of God, we better not fight against him. So they beat him anyway. They agreed with him, and when they called the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. The word Christ means Messiah. Jesus as the Messiah. All right, verse 1 of the next chapter. Now in those days when the number of the disciples were multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists or the Greeks because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. We'll explain that later. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, 
a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this precious story. We thank you, Lord, for your word. I pray, Lord, you'd speak to us from this story and help us apply it to our lives corporately as a church and individually as believers. In Jesus' name, amen. Welcome to the MLB, not Major League Baseball, but Major Living Basics, where we have used the imagery of baseball to communicate truths for the sake of memory, not to be cute or clever or unique, but simply to help us remember. Who needs some help remembering stuff? I know I do. One time I left a mall and thought my car had been stolen. Meanwhile, I'd walked out of the wrong side of the mall. I need help. So the first of the year, January 1st, year 2012, the sermon was entitled First. And we declared the preeminence of Christ, how he is the first, he is the alpha, he is the beginning, he is the author of our faith. He is first. And when we recognize that, our lives begin to get in order. He said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things in life will be added to us, meaning they're coming later. And then we declared a truth. Jeff Ferris ably communicated the truth that I am second. He is first, and I am second. This is ground-level discipleship. He is first. I'm not. There's not two firsts. There's only one first. It's him, and I am second. And then on the third Sunday of the year, Greg and Marietta Harold skillfully declared the truth line upon line and precept upon precept, that if you're married, and really in all relationships, I must become third and make others second. If I'm married, my spouse is second. Your husband or your wife is second. And you are third. And so we rounded the bases last Sunday. We brought it home. Marriage is second in our values, to our relationship with Jesus, which is eternal. And third, of importance to that, is not us. We're fourth. We're not last because Jesus is the last. He made himself the least and the last, and so we can't ever take his place. But we are fourth. Spouse is second. Children are third because they're a priority. They're not second. Priority in any relationship is that part of the relationship that will last the longest. And so in your, in your relationships, your relationship with God is priority because you will be in relationship with him throughout eternity. Right. Marriage is an earth thing. You know, your honey may tell you, I love you forever. I'm going to be married to you forever. Well, forever within this earthly existence. But in heaven, there's no longer any marriage. Jesus himself said it. And so, even though you may want to still be married in heaven, there's no one given in marriage. And that's good news for some people. (laughs) So, your wife or your husband 
is the second in priority. Then come your children. One day, as important as they are, one day they're going to leave you. You know, my little girl used to tell me, Daddy, I'm going to stay with you forever. I got to keep her for 33 years, but now she's getting married. And so... And so we have the importance of home. We have the priorities of Christian living, our values down for us as individuals. But who knows, God relates to us individually, but also corporately as his church. And so today we're going to the infield. Coming out of the stands, going into the infield. Come join the team. Can you tell your neighbor, come join the team? Here's a team that has positions They have uniforms, but they have no players. This is a sad church. The enemy's up at bat, and there's no one filling positions. This story that we read in Acts 6 that we're going to look at a little more closely today had some positions that arose with their growth that needed to be fulfilled, and no one was filling them. The church was made up of people of many nationalities, and as it turned out, those who were from Israel originally, the natives of the land, were getting the best stuff. And the foreigners, you know, it wasn't quite uh, up to snuff in dealing with their widows who weren't from Israel. And so there was a role to be filled. The apostles were as busy as they could, and their founding members were as busy as they could be. And so... There were some positions to be filled. And so like this baseball team with positions to fill, so it is with local churches. As we grow, new positions open up, new, new functions open up for a church to continue to be a church. The background to this story is this congregation has begun four chapters earlier in Acts chapter 2 with an amazing outpouring of God's Spirit. It grew to over 3,000 members in one day and to 5,000 members by chapter 4. And these are 5,000 men, not counting the women and the children. So it's a huge congregation. And they all, according to the Scriptures, they all lived communally for eight years, no doubt because so many were from other places and other countries where there were no churches for them to attend. And so they were staying there getting discipled and growing spiritually in the Lord. After eight years, persecution arose. God allowed it. They began to be scattered, and many of them went back to their homes and started churches, and the gospel spread. So this was a unique eight-year incubation period. Some have tried to reproduce this and created cults. And if you're part of a commune and they start buying guns, it's time to get out of there. I wasn't part of a commune, but Yvette and I were part of a church in Houston that had a trailer park. And it was not good. The people who were late to church were the people that lived right on the church property. And the church had an image to upheld. And uh, if people didn't mow their grass, it still had to be mowed. Guess who got to do that? I'm mowing that grass. Lord, if I pastor a church, I promise, I promise we won't do a trailer park. Because guess who's bringing visitors to church? Not people who have saved neighbors. I mean, we all want to be in heaven. We're trying to recreate it right now, and that's not the will of God. In Acts 2, it says they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. That is, they were teaching and fellowship. Somebody's got to host this fellowship. Somebody's got to be doing teaching. The breaking of bread. Who's making this bread for these out-of-town guests? 
and in prayers. Uh, who's doing all this praying if there's new believers who don't know how to pray? And Acts 2.44 says they were together and they had all things in common. They're sharing stuff. So the guy who has furniture and closets is sharing stuff with the person living out of their suitcase. This had to be tough. And they began to sell their possessions and goods and share them with everybody. And they continued breaking bread. Who's making all this bread? From house to house. Where are they getting these houses? So this church, their founding members are very busy ministering to people. They ate their food with gladness. Somebody's preparing food. And what does God do? He continues adding to the church daily. And it doesn't stop there. In Acts 4, it says they had all things in common. And all who were possessors of lands and houses sold them and distributed them to everyone who had need. And so we find our story that the church was growing and lo and behold, this daily sharing of bread and food, the Meals on Wheels program was coming off of its wheels. And the Hellenist or the Greek widows were going hungry. They were running out of food before it got to them. And so verse 2, the 12, the leaders of the church, summoned the multitude of the disciples. There's over 5,000 men plus women and children. And said, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. We've got to have some help. There, were, there was obviously people serving tables who were maxed out. And so leaders of the church are the default guys. If, if the workers in a church are maxed out and there's a job that needs to be done, guess who gets to clean the toilets? The elders of the church. They're the default guys. And so it was a strain on them, and so it's time to make a change. And so verse 3, they said, Brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, who we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So the church grew, and the leadership base of the church grew. Can we all say grow? The point of this story is a biblical assignment for church leaders is to make disciples for the Lord, and that was happening daily the church was growing, and to help them begin growing spiritually, that was happening as they're teaching them daily the apostles' doctrine, and then to equip them for ministry. And that happened here in Acts 6, an example of it. Seven people were raised up because that's how many people they needed not because it was the magic number and every church has to have seven guys called uh, deacons who tell everybody what to do and make sure the Greek widows are taken care of. The church should take care of widows that are in need, yes, but there's also other needs in which we serve. And so in fulfilling that role, they're obeying the Great Commission. Jesus told his followers, those people who would be leaders, he said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. And here we are, thousands of miles away in Texas, hundreds of years later, still obeying this command, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We did this four times today. But it doesn't stop there. Teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. This is what they were teaching. This is what Acts 2 calls the Apostles' Doctrine. They were teaching the commands of Christ. What are these commands? You can find them in the Gospels. Wonderful truths to embrace and to begin to pray. Lord, help me to do this. 
And lo, I am with you always. We're promised that we're not going to do this alone. He's going to help us even to the end of the age. Amen. So let it be done. Also, we have this in Ephesians 4, talking about Jesus. It says, He himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. These are different kinds of ministry, leadership-type gifts. And here's why they're given. For the equipping of the saints... For the work of ministry. If you notice, after saints, there's not a comma. The saints are to be equipped for the work of ministry. What is ministry? It's serving. It's not bossing. It's serving. It's helping. It's meeting needs. This is ministry. The word used here is the word for deacon. Unfortunately, the translators years ago transliterated the word diakonos and gave it an English pronunciation deacon. I so wish they had just translated it to minister like they did here. We wouldn't have some of the nonsense we have in some deacon-possessed churches. We are called to serve. All right, I'm not making fun of deacons, but it's time to respect all the members of the body that are called to serve in ministry. In the back of your bulletin, List our staff there. It says, under ministers, all the members of the church is our calling. Some of us aren't there yet. We're on the journey. We're just getting to know the Lord. We're just beginning to be discipled. We're just beginning to mature in Him. But the day will come when you too will be involved in ministry. You too will be deaconing, as it were. So the purpose of these guys, commonly called the fivefold ministry, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, their purpose is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. I personally believe in the sevenfold ministry. First is Jesus. Go back and read the earlier verses. Jesus ascended on high and gave gifts to men. So he's the first minister of all ministers. And these gifts that he gave were for some people to be apostles, some people to be prophets, some people to be evangelists, some people to be pastors, and some people to be teachers. And so that's six right there, right? Five plus one. You see that? For the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. Oop, there's the seventh fold of the sevenfold ministry of the body of Christ. For the work of the ministry. And what happens as a result when the saints are equipped to minister and they do their thing? This happens. For the edifying of the body of Christ. That is the building up, the strengthening, the maturing, the increasing of the body of Christ. Till... We all come to the unity of the faith. Who knows we're not there yet. So this assignment, God hasn't gone to plan B. It's time for all so-called prophets to return to their Ephesians 4.11 assignment and begin equipping people for ministry. And stop annoying us with these predictions that never come to pass. Everybody said amen. It's so true. The assignment will not change till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, by cunning, crafty men who lie in wait to deceive people and distract us and draw us into cults and have their own agendas. Back to our story. The apostle said this, and here's the response. This saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, 
Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid hands on them, commissioned them for ministry. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith, and the Hellenistic widows got to eat. Aren't you glad God cares about our practical needs? And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. He began to serve greatly as an evangelist and became a martyr. Philip also became an amazing evangelist and brought the gospel to Samaria. Aren't you glad Philip and Stephen didn't kick up their heels and say, you know, I'm not called to help meet the needs of widows. I'm called to be an evangelist. I'm called to do signs and wonders and miracles and get an 18-wheeler and take my tent off across the country. If they had refused to serve in the opportunity that opened to them, they never would have been what they became. The doorway to you and your destiny, Joseph, is to serve where you are with whatever opportunity comes to you. It may be interpreting somebody's dream that needs it. Here's our application. As was the case in the first congregation, sometimes there is a time for certain members from the congregation to transition from being served to serving. And we say that, from being served to serving. I wrote a poem. It doesn't exactly rhyme. It's not that kind of poem, but it's a series of questions. You? Are you? Are you really? Are you really ready to change from an audience to an army, from armchairs to actions, from the stands to the field, from membership to ministry, from spectator to participator? From the bleachers to the goal line, from consuming to contributing, from being bored to having scored, from, endure, from indifference to making a difference, from being a wannabe to really becoming, from the fun of receiving to the joy of relieving, from talking discipleship to walking discipleship, from leaning on his everlasting arms to becoming arms for him, for others, to lean on, from being personally served to serving personally, from just enjoying his benefits to carrying our cross for him, from comfortable pews to the uncomfortable, smelly pews of serving in the ditches of service, from sitting and soaking to serving and yoking with the builder and maker of his church, the head of his body, who gave us this prayer request. The harvest is plentiful, truly, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Amen. Let's just do that right now. <laughs> Lord, we thank you that the harvest is plentiful. We thank you, Lord, for this promise. It's plentiful. We don't have to wait on harvest time. It's here every day. But, Lord, the laborers are few. Increase the number of the laborers. Make us all more effective laborers, Lord. Sharpen our skills. Make us more equipped than ever. In Jesus' name, amen.
Here's some hindrances to equipping for ministry. Number one is the need. For these guys to be commissioned to meet the need of these Hellenist widows, there had to be the need. Otherwise, you got so many chiefs, there's no more Indians. And pardon me if that seems to be politically incorrect, but the point is, all of us are not called to serve in every capacity all the time, but we're called to serve where there is a need. Ministry is meeting a need. Otherwise, we just get fat and sassy as a church, meeting our own needs and never having any impact outside. I'm getting ahead of myself. That's the outfield. That's another sermon. This is the infield, meeting the needs of a church. So to be in leadership, in service, and ministry, there needs to be a need. And trust me, there's plenty of need. Maybe not in the area where you want to serve, but there's plenty of needs other places. Go for it. Another hindrance for equipping for ministry can be an unwillingness. If a person's not willing to serve, we're not going to make them. We're not running a cult, a church that makes people work and guilts them into service and shames people into giving. That's not a New Testament congregation. That's some other thing. Got to be a willingness. So if you're not willing, that's a hindrance. Got to be a willingness. Unbelief in the Bible. The New Testament church shouldn't have people in service and giving the ministry to serve in if they don't believe the Bible is the inspired word of God. Not putting anyone down for that. Maybe you're wrestling with believing in the Bible. That's fine. We love you. We accept you. And we extend the opportunity for you to come and receive ministry all the time. And the day will come when God can, if you will just continue letting him soften your heart, give you the ability... Who believes in the Bible? It's not because you're so smart. It's because he has given us the ability to believe it. Amen. Disbelief about the gospel. Maybe you believe in the Bible, but you really don't believe that you're saved. You know Jesus died for our sins, but you think somehow you've got to add to the gospel and work harder, and you're running around feeling guilty and condemned all the time. This will wear on you and wear on you and wear on you to the point that you give up because of your guilt. So we can't put trust in someone that doesn't understand the awesome grace that has purchased our salvation to the point that there's a heart of appreciation rather than desperation and condemnation. Inspiration instead of perspiration, trying to earn some kind of brownie points with the Father. Wrong beliefs concerning Jesus. Unless you know he is the Son of God and he is the only way to know God, that's what he said. If he's not the only way to know God, then he is a liar. Because that's why they crucified him. He made a big deal. I am the way to know God. I am the way to the Father. The Bible says he is God manifested in the flesh. And so until the Lord gives you the ability to see the revelation, the grace, to believe that, you're a candidate to receive ministry. We don't want you doing a bunch of stuff around here. Non-biblical beliefs about the church. Maybe you believe in the Bible. Maybe a person believes in the gospel. They know they're saved. They've got their doctrines right about him, and they know who Jesus is, and their faith is in him. But they've got some quirks about the church, either because of wrong teaching that they've received, or maybe they got hurt in a church. Maybe you meet people like this. I don't believe in the organized church. Well... What do you believe in? A disorganized church? (laughs) Let's just think that through. Who enjoys disorganized music? 
Even the most complex jazz that sounds totally disorganized, if you understood it, you would see the order that is there. I believe the church in the Bible was highly organized. I mean, we saw from our story here today. Over half of the books in the New Testament were written to local churches to help establish order. Obviously, we want to make room for the Holy Spirit and make room for people's faults, make room for people to grow. We're not running a cult here. Those who are called to lead are called to serve. And so if a person has hang-ups about the church, they don't need to be serving in a church because they'll just sow discord. Something will happen and it will offend them and you won't see them anymore and then there's nobody to man their station in ministry. And finally... Maybe there's just a need for more discipleship and spiritual growth. People ought to be given room to grow spiritually. Can I get an amen? Amen Amen. without us forcing them to serve, forcing them to work and all that other stuff. But if you're growing in the Lord, there's going to generate in your heart a desire to do something. Years ago, Yvette and I joined a church. And they wouldn't let us work immediately because they, they applied the biblical principle. Know those who labor among you. In fact, they had 42 weeks of classes you had to go to before you could really serve. Man, about halfway through it, I was burning up. I had to do something. And they let me be an usher. I was so thrilled. And a week later, they gave me keys to lock the building. I loved it. Didn't know it was a job nobody else wanted. I was just eager to do something. We were the last ones leaving anyway. So, back to our text. In finding people to fill this role, the apostles told the people, "Seek out from among you seven men, because that's what they needed. They needed men because this stuff was going to be burdensome to carry. This food hauling it around. They didn't have vans and trucks." So there had to be seven men, because that's what they needed to meet the need, of good reputation. Doesn't mean maybe in the past they had a bad reputation, but right now in their life they've developed a good reputation. Full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. Somebody that can be trusted. Somebody that loves God and somebody that's got some sense. Because, you, you know, you may run short on bread. How do you distribute this to everybody? Somebody that can think on their feet, whom we may appoint to take care of this business. Now, there's a more detailed description of ministry requirements from people. And these are not hard. When you see this list I'm about to share, you're not going to say, my goodness, who in the world can serve in any church? It's not hard at all. These basically are expectations the world has on us as Christians. Likewise, deacons or ministers, diakonos, must be reverent. That is, respectful. You've got to respect, be respectful. Not double-tongued. In other words, let your yea be yea and your nay nay. You can't put trust in somebody that doesn't know the difference between a truth and a lie. Somebody that speaks the truth. Not given to much wine. If somebody is wrestling with addictions, they have a need to receive ministry. We're not putting anybody down like that. We only want people who are sober in service. Not greedy for money. 
Somebody who's honest in their finances should be trusted. Somebody said greed's not the root of all evil. It's need that's the root of all evil. Well, greed will always keep you in need. Holding the mystery of the faith. They have respect for the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. Your conscience is clear. If if you've got issues to clear up, warrants are out for you, and you can't rest, go deal with that. Go turn yourself in and get that cleared up. But let these also first be tested. What is this, a test to take? No, this is basically time. The time it takes to get to know somebody, to know if they're trustworthy, to know if they have these qualities working in their life. Then let them serve as ministers. Let them oversee areas of ministry within the church. I think on Sunday morning we've got like 20-some people that are serving in various ministry capacities. Being found blameless, meaning their life is in order. An example, we don't want someone up here speaking, having their car towed away by the repo man while he's up here speaking. That's kind of a bad witness. Got to have your life in order, all right? Likewise, their wives or their spouses, there's also deaconesses in the Bible, must be reverent. That is respectful, not slanderers. You know, some people justify talking bad about others because they made them mad. So they've got it coming. I'm going to tell the whole world how sorry they are. That's not God's will. Temperate. Some control regarding issues. Faithful in all things. Some people are real excited to do anything offered them, but they quit before the job is done. You can't trust someone like that. Let deacons be the husband of one wife. Faithful to their wife. Now, In reading these qualities, it doesn't mean if you've ever slandered someone, you can never serve. Or you've ever been drunk or had a drinking problem, you can never serve again for the rest of your life. This is about the present condition of the person's life. Their life is stable. They're the husband of one wife. Which to me, this is my take on it. You're free to disagree with me. This is not a... Test for fellowship in this church. Maybe you had a marriage that fell on the rocks or you had some rocky relationships. But if you're married now, is that marriage stable? Is it solid? Then you can serve, provided these other things are beginning to grow and develop in your life. Ruling their children in their own house as well. One verse in the Bible says, if they don't know how to rule their own house, how can they rule in the house of God? This doesn't mean your children have never been unruly. It just means now you've got them obedient. They understand. If they have to be punished, you deal with them. You rule your house well. You don't abuse them or beat them within an inch of their life. You know, they have respect. They're learning. They're growing. They're maturing. Ruling your house well, then you can serve in the Lord's house as a minister or as a leader. Uh, So everything begins at home. That's why we started there with first, second, third, and home. For those who have served well as deacons or ministers obtain for themselves a good standing and a great boldness in the faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Today's questions is, are you ready to get serious about following Jesus? Are you ready? Are you tired of just dabbling with this Christian thing? Are you ready to dive in wholehearted? Are you ready to pursue his will for your life? He has a will for your life that is not your will. It's his will. Some of you in this room are called to be pastors. 
And the way there may include serving in the nursery. Who knows? Are you ready to begin pursuing that will and taking those first steps? Are you ready to see his church become stronger? Can I get a yes? Yes. Are you ready to transition from just being a church member to becoming a minister? Praise team, come forward. And the prayer team, come forward as well and line up across the front. If you're here today and you'd like to receive prayer for anything, we're here to pray the prayer of agreement with you for any issue in your life. Let's stand. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask you to generate in our hearts a desire to receive ministry in every area where we need it and generate a desire in our hearts to serve in ministry where we are able to. In Jesus' name, Jesus' name. Bless your people. Cause your face to shine upon them. Be gracious to them. Lift up your countenance upon them and give them your peace. In Jesus' name. Amen.